invite you to take your Bibles and open to the book of Colossians. And we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1 this morning as we continue the series that we started last Sunday through this wonderful New Testament book. If you were not here last Sunday, maybe you're visiting with us today, uh, you can go online to moberly.org and catch that sermon. That way you're all caught up in the series. But we're going to continue today in Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 3 through 8 today. And as you're turning there, I want to just take a, a, a few moments uh, before we dive into the text. <clears throat> in these early weeks that I'm your pastor, we're just still getting to know one another. And I want to talk to you uh, each week about just uh, some things, thoughts on my heart and mind about uh, what it means to be a pastor and what it means to do church together and that kind of thing. And uh, that way we can get to know one another uh, more and more uh, over these next few weeks. And so this morning, I would just want to talk with you about what I'm going to be doing here in these early days as your pastor. I want to outline just three priorities uh, that I have uh, for these early days uh, as your pastor. The first priority is just reminding you constantly of our purpose as a church. I think it is a lead pastor's job to always call the church back to the center, to remind us of who God has called us to be, what God has called us to do. You, some of you have heard the story of Vince Lombardi who went uh, on first day of training camp with the Green Bay Packers and uh, held up a football to these professional athletes and said, this is a football. And it's important to remember the basics, right? To just remember what it is that God has called us to, to be about and, and to do. And so part of my job is to clarify and articulate our purpose and to help us move the ball down the field in accomplishing our mission as a church. Second priority in these early days is just simply preaching. The ministry of the word is so very important because it's how God feeds his sheep. And so you need spiritual nourishment, amen? And so God uh, gives us spiritual nourishment in a lot of different ways, but one of the primary means is through the scriptures. And so one of the important responsibilities that I have week in and week out is to open the scriptures and uh, to minister to you uh, through, through preaching. And then the third priority in these early days is just the priority of people. Um, ministry is a people business. And so one of my jobs in this first year is to get to know the people of Moberly Baptist Church. And so in these early days, I'm spending a lot of time with uh, the pastors, the ministers, the staff members of our church, with, with leaders in our church, with different uh, deacons of our, our, our church, and so on and so forth. But I want to have a chance to spend time with you as members of our church as well. And so I hope that we will have a chance uh, in the next uh, months to come to uh, get a chance to sit down and to visit. Now, I want you to know, if you would like to meet with me, I would love to do that with you. Uh, I live and die by a calendar though, okay? And as you, you can imagine in these early days, the calendar is pretty full. And so love to have a chance to sit down and visit with you. It may take a few weeks to be able to have a chance to really sit down and do that. So I just ask for your patience, I'm limited. Good spot for an amen. Amy can say that. Amen. I am limited, okay? And so only have a certain number of hours in the day. Uh, so just be patient with me. I would love to have a chance to meet with you. We've got a lot of years together uh, to where we can do that. But that will be one of my priorities is just to listen and to learn and to come to love and to know the people of Moberly Baptist Church. So in case you wondered what, what does a pastor do when he's first starting, those are some of the priorities that I'll be giving attention to in these early days. Now, hopefully you've had a chance to find <clears throat> your way to Colossians chapter 1. If you're there, just let me know by saying amen. amen. And you can say amen as much as you want through this sermon as we go along, all right? Now, I want to talk with you for a few moments this morning <clears throat> about defining the when. What really matters for the church? You know, a lot of people have a lot of different viewpoints about what really matters for a church and what a church ought to be and do. 
And the only problem with that is that that definition seems to constantly shift and change. Have you ever noticed that? That there seems to be fads and trends and different emphases over the years. It seems like every five years there's kind of this new thing that the church is supposed to be and to do. And, uh, and the problem is, is that that target is, is constantly shifting. If you've ever gone to the gun range, you know the difference between target shooting and skeet shooting. Target shooting, the target is fixed. You know what you're aiming at. But skeet shooting, you might aim at where you think that little uh, disc is going to be. And by the time you pull the trigger, it's five feet further, right? And so it's a shifting target. And it seems like some of the ways that we talk about what is a win as a church or what it means to be a, a success as a church, it seems like that definition is often shifting. And we've really redefined that so much in the evangelical world that it's, it's, it is a moving target. It's like the goalposts move. You achieve what you think you're supposed to be, and then all of a sudden there's this, this new fad or new trend, and you're supposed to be something else. And so there's many different models and methods and markers for ministry. And uh, you'll remember the church growth movement back in the 80s, and then that kind of shifted into the 90s with the seeker-sensitive movement. That was where we kind of got into those awful Hawaiian shirts from the pulpit. You remember that those days? And you had lots of skits and things like that in church because you were trying to engage seekers. And, and, and there's just a lot of that, right? Are we supposed to be emerging? Are we supposed to be a simple church? Are we supposed to be a purpose-driven church? It's like all of these different definitions of what it means to be successful as a church. Well, I want to talk with you about what the Apostle Paul has to say about what matters in a church, okay? And so that's what we're going to see in Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. In this paragraph, Paul is giving thanks to God for the church at Colossae. And the value of this little paragraph is that as he's thanking God for this church, we actually get to see what matters to the heart of God for the church. And so let's look, look together in verse 3 of, of chapter 1. Paul says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Now, let's just pause right there because what Paul is doing here is he's giving thanks, right? He says, we, we thank God for you. But notice when he's doing it. It says, when we pray, and notice how often he's doing it. He says, always, okay? So Paul is thanking God for the Colossian church when he prays, and how often is he doing this? Always. Now, let's just think about that for a moment. Something was going on in the life of the church at Colossae. Something was so commendable about that church that someone as great as the Apostle Paul, right, the greatest missionary of all time, writer of Scripture, planter of churches, discipler of pastors, probably the most influential Christian of 2,000 years of church history, that every time that Paul bowed his head in prayer, he remembered the Colossian church and thanked God for them. Now, that's pretty significant, isn't it? Something was so commendable about them that every time he prayed for them, he remembered to thank God for that church at Colossae and all that was going on there. And that is valuable for us because it really helps us to understand what matters to the heart of God for the church. Amen? It helps us to define the win. And so that's what we're going to be talking about this, this morning. And, and here's the deal. What matters most for the church is not complicated. It is not rocket science. You don't have to have a PhD to understand it. Paul gives it to us clearly here when he says that there are some things going on among you that make me so grateful that I mention it every time I pray. So let's see what those things are. Look down at the text again. Verse 3 
tells us what he's doing. He's thanking God when he's doing it, when he prays, how often he's doing it, always. But verse four, verses four through eight, tells us why Paul is giving thanks. So notice the why beginning in verse four. He says, for or because we have heard about your faith in Christ Jesus. You're gonna wanna circle or underline that. Your faith in Christ Jesus because of the love that you have for all the saints. You're gonna wanna underline that. Because of the hope reserved for you in heaven, you're gonna wanna underline that. And you've heard about this hope in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. It is bearing fruit and growing all over the world. And you'll wanna underline this phrase, just as it has among you since the day that you heard it and came to truly appreciate God's grace. You learned this gospel from Epaphras, our dearly loved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. And he has told us about your love in the spirit. So I wanna suggest this morning that there are four things for which Paul gives thanks to God for this church at Colossae that will actually help us to define the win as a church. And here's the first thing, it's our faith in Jesus. You could call this an upward focus. Paul says, I thank God that among all of the ways that I could describe the church at Colossae, that you are a church marked by faith in Christ Jesus. Now notice, he puts faith, love, and hope together, and that should be recognizable to you. You've probably seen that triad of Christian virtues together before. For instance, in 1 Thessalonians, you can see a text here on the screen, chapter 1 and verse 3, we recall in the presence of our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. How about 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 13? Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, right? So these are constantly appearing together and here they appear together again. But Paul begins by saying, the first thing in the list is your faith in Jesus. Notice what he's not saying about the church. He's not saying to the church at Colossae, hey, you have rockin' music. Now, they might have had rock and music, probably did. He doesn't say, wow, your buildings are gorgeous. They, well, no, they probably didn't have, they probably met in a house. In fact, we know they met in Philemon's house. He doesn't say, boy, you're, you're, you offer some great age-graded ministries for our children and our youth, and I'm really thanking God for that. He doesn't say any of those things. All of those things are great, folks. What does he say, though, that really matters? It's your faith in Christ Jesus. This was a church that was marked by their faith in Christ. Now, what does it mean to have faith? Well, it's, it's very simple. Faith, to have faith, <clears throat> it doesn't mean that you just put positive vibes out there into the universe, okay? That's not what it means to have faith. To, to have faith means to exercise trust, to trust. Um, John G. Patton says that it means to lean your whole weight upon. Now, I made the mistake of leaning my whole weight on something that couldn't carry my whole weight the other day. I've got a library, and uh, it's, a library is a wonderful thing to have and a terrible thing to have to move. And recently, it got moved about 500 miles from Amarillo, Texas to Longview, Texas. It's over in the office right over there. And I think there were 40 or 50 boxes of, of books, but some of the boxes, and look, some of the books that had commentaries, like especially the commentaries on Romans, those are hefty boxes, okay? You can stand on top of that box and reach something on top of a shelf. It's gonna hold your weight up. But then there were a couple of boxes in there in the mix that had like things like papers. 
And my problem is that I didn't always clearly mark which box was which. And so the other day I was trying to climb to reach something and I thought I was standing on a box of commentaries. I wasn't, I was standing on a box of papers and so I stood up on that thing and I just fell right through the box. I was putting my trust in something that really couldn't hold my weight up. Paul is saying, you have rested the weight of your life on the right object, Jesus Christ. You have fully rested your weight. And here's the deal. We can, we can rest the weight of our life and our trust on so many different things, can't we? We, we can put our trust that our, that our bank account's going to be full or that our, that our health is going to be uh, good or that our family is going to be happy or things of this nature. And those things can't always hold the weight of your life, can you? Sometimes you put your, your weight on that box and it is just going to fall through. Paul says you have put your trust in the most trustworthy person you can ever put your trust in, in Christ Jesus. You want to make sure that the object of your faith is trustworthy. In fact, one commentator said that the value of faith is derived from its object. What that means is what matters is not just faith for faith's sake. Okay? Some people will say out there in the culture, you just have to believe. You just got to have faith. Like faith for faith's sakes matter. Faith for faith's sakes. Is that right? Faith's sake matters. There we go. It'll get out there eventually. You're the second service, so my brain's already toast. It's not just faith for faith's sake that matters. It's faith in Jesus that matters. You want to make sure that the object of your faith is worthy of your trust. Amen? And this was a church that was marked by total dependence on Christ, the only one worthy of trust. That's how they were known. I wonder if that's how we are known. Are we known as people who have great abilities and resources on our own? Are we known as people who greatly depend on Christ? You say, Pastor, what would be a win for the church? Well, a win for the church would be people who deeply depend on Christ. If that was how we were known, if that was our reputation, that we are a church full of people who have a deep dependence on Christ as opposed to self-dependence, right? And it's so easy to be self-dependent, to say, we have what it takes, we have the resources, we can do this in our own strength. I don't want what I can do in my own strength, do you? I don't want what I can accomplish. I don't want what I can produce. I can accomplish some things. I can produce some things in my own strength. I want what God can, can accomplish. I wanna live my life in that space where if God doesn't come through, we're not gonna make it. That's what it means to have great faith in Christ. And this is how the church at Colossae was known. They trusted. They were not self-dependent. They were Christ-dependent. They said, listen, we are, if we're going to make it in this world, it's going to be because Jesus comes through for us and our faith is in him. Now, I know that faith is a hard thing to think about sometimes because a lot of times people doubt. I don't know if you've, you've ever doubted in your faith. And sometimes people wonder, well, what if I have weak faith? Well, let me just encourage you with this thought, that the object of your faith matters more than the strength of your faith. In other words, weak faith still matters. I would go beyond that to say that weak faith in a strong God still saves. Do you believe that? Weak faith in a strong God still saves because the security of your salvation is not dependent on the strength of your faith, but the strength of your Savior. 
And that's really good news for those who struggle with faith. It's really good news for those who have the dark night of the soul or those who doubt or those whose faith sometimes feels a little shaky. It means that if you have, right, Jesus said it this way, if you have the faith that's the size of what? A mustard seed, you can move mountains, right? So even weak faith saves. And you may struggle with faith in Jesus. Maybe you're here today and it's maybe your first time in church or you're just kind of exploring Christianity. And I would just encourage you, doubt is part of faith, okay? And it's okay to, to have doubts. It's okay to struggle with faith. And if that's you, you can just trust that Jesus is a strong enough Savior to save you even when your faith is weak. Um, we used to have a, a big tree out in our front yard uh, growing up as a kid, and from time to time, we would climb up into that tree, and uh, some, some of our friends would climb up there, and they would get a little nervous about being in that tree. They weren't really sure if that tree could hold them up. So they'd climb up there, and then they'd cling to that tra- tree, and they'd say, oh, like, it's going to break. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fall. And, and sometimes our faith is kind of like that. We're putting faith in Jesus, but it's kind of like, is this going to hold me up? Is, can Jesus save me? I'm just so scared. But here's the deal. When you're up in that tree, it doesn't matter if you struggle with doubt or you have strong faith that that branch can hold you up. The only thing that's relevant is the strength of that branch. And it will hold you even if you don't believe it will hold you. It'll hold you even if you're scared. It'll hold you even if you're clinging to it for dear life because you're worried that it might let you down because it's not about the strength of your faith but the strength of the object of your faith. And that's why it's so important not just to have faith for faith's sake, but to have faith in Christ Jesus, because it is the strength of our Savior and His work for us, and not the strength of our faith that saves us, which means that you can totally trust Christ. You can rest the weight of your life on Jesus and what Jesus has done for you, and His death on the cross for your sins, and His resurrection from the dead. You can fully rest your life, your trust, your hope that Jesus is strong enough to save you no matter what you've done, no matter even if your faith struggles, we have a strong Savior who saves strongly. Amen? And this church was known as a church that had deep faith in Jesus. And here's the deal. If, if we are full of people who trust Christ deeply rather than trusting self, and if we're a church that helps people grow into deeper trust in Christ, that is a win as a church. Can you say amen to that? Here's the second win, not only our love for Jesus, our faith in Jesus, but number two, our love for one another. You could call this an outward look. Notice what Paul says in verse four. He says, I thank God every time I pray for you. Why? Because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all of the saints. Now, love for others, that's what he's talking about here. Love for others is really evidence and an outflow of our love for God. And he's saying, you love God so much that it just flows out in your love outwardly, your love for other people. And as I read this sentence here in, in the text, I just wonder, wouldn't it be amazing if the reputation of Moberly Baptist Church, what we were known for, was not primarily about the size of our congregation, but the size of our love? If when people talked about Moberly, they wouldn't just say, oh, it's that, it's that big church <laughs> there on Luke 281, but that they would say, That's a church that loves big. That's a church that really cares about people. 
That's a church that, that really makes a difference in our community. Wouldn't that be a win if that was what we were known for? The Colossian church was known for its great love. Now, what does it mean to have love for all the saints? Well, there are lots of words for love. Even in the English language, we can say, I love my dog. I love bluebell ice cream. Can I get a witness? And I love my wife. But I mean all of those differently, right? And the New Testament has several different words for love as well. Phileo, for instance, we get the city Philadelphia. It's the city of what? Brotherly love. That's what phileo love is. It's like the way that you love a friend or a family member. That's not the word he uses here. He uses a different word. It's the word agape. Agape is a kind of selfless love. It is Christ-like love. It is, uh, the way I put it is that it is love with tennis shoes on. It is love that looks out for the good of others. It's love that looks for the good of my fellow believer, the good of my neighbor, and I actually do something about it. In fact, a synonym that you could write out in the margins of your Bible is the word care. To love all the saints is really to express care for them. That's what it means, folks, to be a loving church. It means that we are a church that cares for people. We are a church where you are not just a statistic or a number on a sheet of paper somewhere, that you're a person made in the image of God, valuable to God, someone for whom Christ died, someone who really matters in the kingdom, and that we are a church that cares for you in that way. Wouldn't that be a win if we loved, thank you, if we loved people like that, to care for people in tangible, practical, real ways? And notice, by the way, this little three-letter word here in verse 4, they loved all the saints. Now, just let's talk about that for a second, because it's easy to love some of the saints, especially the lovable ones, the easy-to-love ones. But Paul says, you are known because you love everybody, even the unlovable ones, even the ones who are difficult people. You know, the church has always, throughout her history, always been known as a place where people who are marginalized are welcomed. The church has always been a place where people who don't fit in elsewhere can be cared about here. Thank you. Three of you are starting to catch on. Amen. I've always said that the church is like uh, the island of misfit toys. You remember that? That old movie? The island of misfit toys. That we're the place where if, if you are not fitting in elsewhere, where you would say, nobody cares about me, nobody sees me, nobody loves me, that the church would be the one place where there's a group of people who will love you like Jesus loves you, that will see you like Jesus sees you. I'm thankful that Jesus sees us. In fact, Adrian Rogers uh, put it this way. He said, God doesn't just love all of us. He loves each of us. What he meant by that is that it's not just, God doesn't just love you because you're part of the crowd. He loves you as an individual. Let me just speak for a moment to those who are in this room who don't follow Jesus yet. Let me just tell you, if you are exhausted from living in a culture where it feels like you are just constantly run over by people, understand the good news of Jesus is that the God of the universe actually knows your name, knows the number of hairs on your head. He sees you, he loves you, and he cares for you. And in fact, the way Jesus described his own love 
for people was like this. He said there, uh, uh, there was a shepherd who had 100 sheep, and one was lost. And so he left the 99 behind to go and find that one. And that tells us about God's love for us, that God loves not just the 99. He loves the one so much that he's willing to leave the the 99 behind to go and rescue that one. What I would tell you is that God doesn't just see you as a face in the crowd. He sees you as someone he created, someone he designed, somebody he's given purpose to. Someone that Christ died for, someone who has value and purpose. He sees you, knows you, cares for you. He loves you. And that's what the church is called to be and to do, to be a place where we see people and we care for people like God does, where we care not just about the 99 who are here, but we're always thinking about the one, the one who's on the edge, the one who's not reached yet, the one who belongs here but's not here yet, the one who's been left alone in this world, but in Christ they can be found. Amen? That's why we believe that an alone person in the church is an emergency. If you see somebody that's by themselves, that, that, is, that is an emergency in the church because we are called to be a place that loves all the saints. We care for people, that if we see somebody sitting by themselves, we go invite them to sit with us. Or if we see somebody who's isolated or on the margins, we invite them to our connect group. We see people and care for people. That is a win in the church. R. Kent Hughes, who pastored uh, many years to the college church at Wheaton, said this. He said, this, th- this love is what made the early church so amazing and so enticing to the ancient world. Barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, male and female, Jew and Greek, learned and ignorant, joined hands and sat down at one table. They knew themselves to be all one in Christ Jesus. There had never been anything like this. A new thing had come into the world, a community held together by love and not by geographical accidents or common language or by the iron chains of the conqueror. Folks, that's what we are called to be and to do, not just to have deep faith in Jesus, but great love for one another. Amen? Here's the third thing. He thanked God for... And we can thank God. We can prioritize, call this a win for the church, our hope in God's good future. You could call this a forward focus. It's not just faith in Christ Jesus. It's not just love for all the saints, but it's our hope in God's good future. Nobody, notice what he says in verse 5. He says, you, you have deep faith and you have great love. Why? Because of this great hope that you have that's reserved in heaven for you. He's saying when you think about what God has reserved for you in heaven... That motivates your faith and your love. We ought to have the kind of hope in what God is going to do that people would say, man, you have great faith. Why is that? And we say it's because of our hope in Christ. That They they look at us and they say, boy, you love really well. You really care about people. Why is that? And you say it's because of our hope in Christ. You see, when we really think about what God has prepared for us in Christ, God's future affects our now. Our hope in heaven drives our faith and love. Our hope in heaven, listen, in some ways we are ambassadors of the future. We are so confident about the good thing that God has in the future, this hope that we call heaven, that we bring those heavenly realities into day-to-day life in East Texas. And when people look at our faith, 
And they look at our love, they say, why is this? And we say it's because we have a great hope in Christ. And notice a couple of things that are said about this hope. First of all, their hope is reserved in heaven. You see that in verse 5? The hope reserved for you in heaven. That word reserved, it means to lay away, to store up, to reserve. It means, look, if you uh, go to lunch this afternoon and you reserve a table at a restaurant, it means that table has your name on it. It's just for you. No one can take it. It's reserved for you. And Paul here is saying that your hope is reserved for you. It has your name on it. It means that your hope in Christ is secure. Your hope in Christ is safer than the gold in Fort Knox. No one can take it from you. There are a lot of things that this world can take from you, but if you have hope in Christ, the world can't take your hope from you. Listen, salvation is like this. You don't deserve it. You can't earn it. But once you have it, you won't ever lose it. Amen? Our hope is reserved for us in heaven. Here's the second thing that, that he tells us about our hope. Our hope is, is grounded in the truth of the gospel. The way that we have hope, again, this is, this is not, uh, we don't have faith for faith's sake, we don't have hope for hope's sake. It's not like hope is just these wishful thoughts that we have about the future. No, our hope is attached to the gospel. Notice what he says in verse 5, you have heard about this hope in the word of truth, say it with me right here, the gospel that has come to you. Paul is saying that our hope in Jesus is grounded in the reality and the truthfulness of the gospel. And here's why that matters for you. Because hope is not mere wishful thinking. It is confident expectation rooted in the promises of God. We're not just hoping for hope's sake. Uh, we're not just sort of sending out good vibes into the universe. Those types of hopes will disappoint us. They'll let us down, right? You can hope for all kinds of things that'll let you down. I, can, I hope that I have a great uncle that I don't know about who's got a great inheritance. <laughs> That's probably gonna let me down. We've been living in West Texas, Southeast New Mexico for over a decade. You can hope that it rains. <laughs> That's called wishful thinking. It'll let you down, it'll disappoint you. But our hope in Christ will never let us down. Our hope in Christ is sure and steady and as certain as it can possibly be because it is rooted in the person and the work and the return of Christ. And so are we a people that are marked by a deep hope in God's good future? And no matter what's happened in the past, no matter the hurts, the sorrows, the disappointments, that we cultivate hope because we believe that Jesus is on the throne and therefore the future is bright. Amen? The future is as bright as the promises of God. And if we are a people who have great dependence on Christ and great love for other people and great hope in the work of Christ, folks, that is a win as a church. But let me give you a fourth and a final thing. It's not just our faith in Jesus and our love for one another and our hope in God's good future, but it is our growth in the gospel that matters. You could call this an inward focus. Our growth in the gospel. One of the things that Paul thanks God for about this church is that they were a people marked by spiritual growth. And I want you to see it here in the text. Look in verse, <clears throat> verse 6. He says, look, you, you've heard about this hope in the gospel that has come to you. Now, he begins to describe the gospel in the middle of verse 6, he says, it, the gospel, is bearing fruit and growing all over the world. Now, isn't that true of the gospel? 
The gospel is unstoppable. In fact, one of my favorite words uh, in the book of Acts is it's the word, it's the last word in the Greek New Testament. Most of you in your English translation, it won't translate it this way. It's a, it's a tragedy. The book of Acts is a, a, a story of the unstoppable growth of the gospel and the very last word of the last sentence of the last paragraph of the last chapter of the book of Acts is Paul preaching the gospel. It says Paul is preaching the gospel and the last word is the word unhindered, unhindered. In other words, the gospel is unstoppable and that is so true, right? Tyrants and dictators have tried to squish the gospel for 2,000 years tried to silence the church for 2,000 years. But do you know that in some of the most persecuted nations in the world today, the church is flourishing the most? Some of the fastest growing church planting movements anywhere in the world are happening in China and Cuba. And that's what Paul is saying. The gospel is marked by unstoppable growth. It is bearing fruit and growing. But now notice he is going to take that big truth and he's going to apply it to the lives of the Colossians. Look what he says here in the middle of verse 6. He says, the, the gospel is growing. It is unstoppable. It is bearing fruit all over the world. Now notice this, just as it has among you since the day you heard it and came to truly appreciate the grace of God. Paul is saying one of the reasons that every time I pray I remember to thank God for you, church at Colossae, is because not only you have deep faith in Jesus, not only you have great love for one another, not only you have abiding hope in God's good future, but you are growing in the gospel. In the same way that the gospel is characterized by this unstoppable growth, that also characterizes you as believers, that what's true of the gospel is true of you. And in the way that gospel bears fruit and grows, you are bearing fruit and growing. So what he's thanking God for here, it helps us to define the wind to understand what matters most. He's saying you are growing in Christ, and that's really what matters most. You are growing in the gospel. In, in other words, the gospel is the root. Growth is the fruit. You, you are being rooted in the truthfulness of the gospel, and as a result, you are bearing fruit in your life. You are growing into greater maturity in Christ. Chris Scott shared this verse with me this week. It was a real encouragement. 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 30. It's actually a great prayer for the church. This is what it says. It says, the surviving remnant of the house of Judah will again take root downward and bear fruit upward. Isn't that a good verse? Wouldn't that be a wonderful prayer for the church? And how great would it be if that's how we define success as a church? That we are a people who are rooted in the gospel and we bear fruit for Christ. That we are a church marked by people who are continuing to grow deeper in their walk with Christ. That they're continuing to mature in their walk with Christ. And isn't this how the New Testament often speaks about the Christian life? Right, you have a couple of different images that the New Testament provides for us. <clears throat> the idea of the maturation of child to adult. Right, Paul says, for instance, I used to be like a child. I spoke like a child and so on and so forth. But when I became a man, I left behind what? Childish things. So that's a marker of 
Uh, that's a way of talking about what it means to grow. It means when you start out in faith, it's like you're a child and you're, you're handling milk. But then God's plan for you as a believer is to, to begin to grow and to mature so that you're an adult. And adults eat steak and bacon. Mm-mm-mm. You leave behind the veggies. You, believe, you leave behind the... All right, now I'm stepping on toes now. All right. There's something solid. In other words, God doesn't just have milk toast for you in your walk with Christ. There's a steak out there for you. And part of the call to follow Christ is to get your fork and your knife and pull up to the table and get the steak. That's what it means to grow. You're maturing. You're leaving behind childish things. You're becoming an adult. The other image that the New Testament uses is of a plant that is rooted and bears fruit. And that's the image that Paul is using here. He's saying, I thank God for you because your roots go, grow deep and you bear great fruit for Christ. Now, let me just be really clear here that I am not talking about numerical growth. When I say growth, numerical growth is not what I mean. I'm talking about your growth in maturity in Christ. And that really is the objective for what we do as a church, right? That is the marker of success. And we need to be really careful because it's really easy to kind of slip into the mentality that if we are growing numerically, automatically that means we're being successful. Or if we're not growing numerically, that means that we're not successful. And that's not necessarily true. Sometimes the Lord prunes what he loves because he wants it, that tree to bear more fruit, right? And, and here's the deal. Numbers are not a good measurement of success because numbers are fickle. They change because people are fickle. COVID showed us that. Um, you can't control numbers. You can't control who decides to show up to something. Or you try to control it by manipulating those numbers or manipulating things. You start to do weird and silly things as a church just to grow a crowd. It's fairly easy to get a crowd in a room. That's not necessarily a measurement of success. Cancer grows. We want healthy growth. And what we're talking about there is spiritual growth. Okay, that's our objective as a church. If you want to know where is Pastor Andrew going to lead us, that's where. That we would be a church that helps you grow in Christ. In other words, Moberly does not exist to grow numerically for self-glory. Moberly exists to help people grow for God's glory. If you're a guest with us today, maybe you're just checking us out, I just want you to know, we're not asking you to help us grow numerically. We are here to help you grow spiritually. That's why we're here. The scorecard for success is growth in Christ. That's how we know if we're actually succeeding and winning as a church. Are we helping people grow in their relationship with Christ? Are they getting more mature in their relationship with Christ? Are they taking their next step in maturity with Christ? Do they love Jesus more? Is their faith getting strengthened? Is their love for others increasing? Is their hope deepening? Are they growing in Christ? Folks, that is the objective of everything we do. Growth in Christ really is the bottom line. So that individuals and homes and neighborhoods and nations are changed. We help people grow in Christ. That is the measurement of success. Amen?
And so let me just close by just asking you this question. Every single person in this room has a next step of growth that they can take. Every sing- it doesn't matter if you are here today and you've never been in a church before. There's a step that you can take. Or if you've been worshiping Jesus for 60 years, <clears throat> there's a step that you can take. And so let me just ask you to consider what would it look like to take a next step to grow in Christ? Maybe you're here today and you're not even a follower of Jesus. Let me just tell you, your next step would be to take the step of salvation, to understand that the God of the universe created you for himself. You were made by God, and you were made for God, but your sin separates you from God. And so God loved you so much, he sent his son, Jesus, to die on the cross for your sin, to be raised from the dead so that you can be rescued by God. That's the good news of the gospel. And if you've never understood that or accepted the truthfulness of that, then your next step today would be to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. If you'd like to do that after the service in just a moment, You can walk out those back doors into the guest area, and there will be people who would love to talk with you about how to have a relationship with Christ. If you're watching online, you can text MBC to the number on your screen, and somebody will be in touch with you about how to have a relationship with Christ. That would be a next step. If you've been saved, but you've never been baptized, guess what? Baptism is how you go public with your faith. It's how you let the world know that you are saved. Baptism could be your next step. If you've been saved and baptized, but you've never uh, jumped into Scripture and prayer, then your next step could be what I call spiritual formation. And spiritual formation may be a new term for you. Some of you have heard the word discipleship. Spiritual formation is just cultivating rhythms in your life for intimacy with God. So you spend time in the Word. You spend time in prayer. You spend time fasting. You give to the Lord. You witness for for Jesus. You connect with a local church. Those are spiritual formation rhythms. That could be your next step. If you've never had a daily time of intimacy with the Lord, that would be a next step for you. Maybe you're doing all of those things personally, but you've never connected with a church family for worship. That would be a next step for you is to to join with a church family that can provide accountability and structure for your spiritual formation. We use the words here, worship, connect, and serve. What we mean by that is we want everyone connecting in worship. We want you gathering with God's people to hear the word, to sing together, to pray, to fellowship with God's people. We also want you to connect though, and we have connect groups. That's where you know people You get plugged into a smaller group that you can do the Christian life with, right? Discipleship in community. That's Connect. If you've never been part of a Connect group, that would be a next step. Probably the majority of people in this room have been saved, baptized. You read the Word in prayer. You gather weekly for worship. You're even involved in a Connect group, but you've never taken that next step, which is to serve others. To serve others is really not just to be a receiver, but a giver. Not just to be a consumer, but a contributor. Not just to sit and soak, but to stand and serve. To be the hands and feet of Jesus. It means life on mission with Jesus. It means that you join God in his great big mission for the world. It means that when you drive out of this place and you see the sign that says you're entering your mission field, (laughs) that you see that as a call to action. To live your life on purpose for King Jesus. That could be your next step if you've never done that. Whatever your next step with Jesus is, my prayer for you is that you would be committed to grow in Christ. That's a win. Amen?
Let's stand together and we're going to pray. Lord, we are so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for how it challenges us and speaks to us and encourages us. It clarifies things for us. It defines for us what is really important and what matters most. Lord, I pray that as a church, we would be committed to the things that matter the most and empower it through your spirit for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Nate is going to lead us in one final song. Let me remind you, as you leave this place, live on purpose. God has put somebody across your path. You can minister to them for Jesus. Really, when we leave this place, we're not being dismissed. We're being sent. 